Thank you for coming to a ISGAP lecture with uh, Jonathan Spire. Mr. Spire is a senior research fellow at the Gloria Center, IDC Herzliya. He is the author of Transforming Fire, The Rise of Israel-Islamist Conflict. Dr. Spire's focus of research is on Syria, Lebanon, and Israeli regional strategy. He's a columnist and an analyst on regional affairs at the Jerusalem Post newspaper. Dr. Spire has traveled extensively in the Middle East and has reported from Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. He's a frequent contributor to print media. His work has been published in the London Times, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, Haaretz, and a variety of other publications. He is also a frequent guest panelist, guest speaker on electronic media, including BBC World, Channel One Israel, Al Jazeera, among others. My name is Lloyd Fischler, and let's give Mr. Spire a warm Montreal welcome. Um, thank you very much, and uh, it's very nice to uh, be here and to have the chance to uh, to address you on this uh, important subject. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about for, I guess, something like the next uh, 40 minutes or so is the issue of anti-Semitism uh, in the contemporary Middle East. Uh, and following my uh, initial uh, lecture, we will have a questions and answers uh, session for, I guess, uh, 40, 45 minutes or as long as the questions keep coming. I don't have a microphone here, or I have a microphone to be recorded, but not, so I hope people can hear me okay. If not, then we have a problem because I don't want to start screaming and claiming. Um, okay, well, let me, to get straight to it then, uh, say the following. The Middle East today is the most anti-Semitic uh, region in the world. It is a region in which, uh, perhaps uniquely in contemporary times, uh, negative stereotypes of Jews including ideas of Jewish uh, conspiracy and nefarious and occult Jewish control of world power centers uh, exist freely in the cultural mainstream. One may find uh, manifold examples of this in popular media and uh, in cultural production in the modern Middle East. What I want to try to do in this uh, lecture is first of all to give uh, a few examples from uh, the large amount of evidence of the pervasive presence of uh, anti-Semitism in contemporary Middle Eastern societies. I will then uh, note two approaches that seek to explain the roots of this uh, phenomenon. I will then uh, attempt a short survey of the history of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish sentiment in the Middle East uh, in order to ascertain which, if any of these approaches, uh, best explain the reasons for the pervasive presence of anti-Semitism uh, in this part of the world, and I'll then uh, attempt some conclusions of my own uh, on this subject. One uh, need not spend a great deal of time uh, traveling in the Middle East and conversing uh, with locals before making the acquaintance of the rich variety of entirely negative uh, stereotypes and conspiracy theories regarding Jews which form a central element of mainstream political discussion in the region. 
an observer of events in the Middle East in recent weeks, for example, uh, would have noted newly elected Egyptian president uh, Mohammed al-Mursi uh, attending prayers led by the popular preacher uh, Futuh Abdel Nabi Mansour. In the prayers, Mansour said, and I quote, uh, O Allah, destroy the Jews and their supporters. O Allah, disperse them, rend them asunder. O Allah, demonstrate your might and greatness upon them. The uh, newly elected Egyptian president uh, can be seen in a film of the event giving a fervent uh, amen to these uh, statements. As an example of the mainstream nature of anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes in the contemporary Middle East, a recent study surveyed programming for Ramadan this year in the Arabic-speaking world and found a large number of popular programs directly engaging in anti-Semitism. For example, the Ashab Sabt bi-weekly show aired by Al-Rahma, a Salafist channel based in Egypt, features an anti-Semitic professor, allegedly a specialist in Hebrew literature, who uses the show as a podium to propagate uh, conspiracy theories from Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other theories about uh, Judaism. Item 1. Item 2. Firkat Naji Atallah, a nightly series widely aired throughout the Middle East, depicts uh, Israelis in classic anti-Semitic uh, fashion, giving audiences the, and I quote, sweetest jokes about the cheap Jew, close quote, according to the NBC network, which is broadcasting the show throughout the Middle East. Another Ramadan uh, favorite, the Il Hukum Ba'ad Il Muzawla, candid camera style show, which airs on the Egypt-based An Nahar uh, TV, similarly provokes irrational and blatantly anti-Semitic reactions from its audience. Some guests have uh, brutally beaten the staff in a recent, uh, or members of staff in a recently aired issue of the show after they were led to believe that these staff members were Jewish. And those of you who, uh, who tune into the memory uh, uh, website will have seen some of this uh, evidence uh, filmed. In addition, the Hezbollah operated the Al Ghalibun show, which uh, depicts, uh, excuse me, Hezbollah operated the Al Manar uh, channel is currently showing a series called Al Ghalibun, which depicts Israelis as cruel invaders of Lebanon and glorifies terrorism against Israel. A 2012 survey conducted by Tel Aviv University found a large number of examples of anti-Semitism deriving from the Arab Spring. In Libya, it uh, pointed to rebel claims, well known I'm sure to many people here, that the mother of longtime ruler and dictator Muammar al-Gaddafi uh, was Jewish. This as a way of defaming the slain uh, dictator. I remember a Danish journalist of my acquaintance, a newcomer to the region, uh, asking me about this when he got back from, uh, from Libya, back to Jerusalem, and saying, is it true that Gaddafi's mother is Jewish, as many people told me in Libya? And I replied to him, well, I'm about to tell you, now you won't understand, but if you stay in the region for four years, just think again of this conversation and then you'll understand. Here's the way it works in this region. Anybody that I don't like is a Jew. He uh, didn't understand it, and if he stays in the region in five years, he will. 
In Syria, the Tel Aviv University study cites insults made by the uh, embattled government of Bashar Assad calling opposition forces, and I quote, an army of donkeys in the service of the Mossad. And in Egypt, the survey notes uh, statements by Muslim scholars who have issued edicts forbidding believers to sign agreements with monkeys, referring to Jews. These are just a few examples of countless examples which could be brought. But one need not rely, of course, solely or mainly on anecdotal or impressionistic uh, evidence regarding the pervasive presence of anti-Semitism in the contemporary Middle East. There is a considerable amount of polling on the subject uh, which uh, attests to this uh, pervasive uh, presence. For example, a poll undertaken by the respected Pew Research Center for its uh, Pew Global Attitudes Project in 2008 looked into attitudes towards Jews uh, in a variety of countries, both in the Middle East and uh, beyond it. The survey found, for example, that in Lebanon, fully 97% of those surveyed had an unfavorable or very unfavorable view of uh, Jews. This included 99% of both the Sunni and Shia Muslim populations of Lebanon. The 97% uh, figure derived from an only slightly less unfavorable view among Lebanese Christians. In Egypt, the figures were 95% with unfavorable or very unfavorable views compared to uh, 3% with favorable or very favorable. In Jordan, the respective figures were 96% to uh, 3%. The 2008 poll showed a slight increase in levels of hostility to Jews in these Arab countries. But in previous polls, the figures had, all, had for all three shown uh, more than 95% of respondents having uh, either an unfavorable or very unfavorable uh, view towards Jews. In non-Arab Muslim countries, interestingly, the, level, the levels of unfavorable uh, views towards Jews were lower, but uh, still striking. In Turkey, for example, the percentage expressing either an unfavorable or very unfavorable attitude towards Jews was 76% against only 7% having a favorable or very favorable uh, view of Jews. In Pakistan, the figures were 76% to 4%. In Indonesia, the figures were 66% to 10%. For the purpose of comparison of the countries polled, those with the highest number of favorable or very favorable uh, attitudes towards Jews were the United States, the UK, and France, with 77, 73, and 79% respectively. Canada was not among the countries polled, so I uh, can't enlighten you with regard to the local attitudes. I'm sure you know all about them. The empirical uh, evidence then uh, for the current near ubiquitousness of anti-Semitic attitudes in three Arab countries bordering Israel is then clear and very striking. Middle East historian Bernard Lewis wrote that by the 1980s the volume of anti-Semitic uh, literature published in the Arab world and its wide audience and the apparent authority of its sponsors suggested that classical anti-Semitism of the formerly Western type had become an essential part of Arab intellectual life considerably more than in late 19th and early 20th century France and to a degree that has been compared to Nazi Germany. 
But while the evidence, as I hope I have now uh, helped to indicate at least, uh, for the current pervasive presence of anti-Semitism in the Middle East is uh, overwhelming, interpreting its causes is more complex. Broadly, two schools exist which seek to account for it, which I will call here the uh, modernist and the perennialist uh, schools. The modernist school holds that anti-Semitism is a phenomenon emerging from the Western Christian world. This view considers that while Jews undoubtedly experienced a legally subordinate status in the Muslim world, this did not traditionally translate into widespread persecution and hatred. Rather, this school contends the uh, relatively small and entirely powerless Jewish communities of the Muslim world were a matter of little concern uh, throughout most of the period following the establishment of Islam and its conquest of the Middle East. Indeed, according to this view, the protected or dhimmi status afforded Jews throughout this period offered them a degree of uh, physical security and protection which was often not available in the contemporary Christian world. According to this view, anti-Semitism of the ideological and virulent type began to grow and spread in the Muslim world with the encroachment of Western ideas and Western power in the 19th century and the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire and traditional Islamic society. The conflict, according to this view, between the Jews and Arabs over Israel-Palestine uh, has greatly exacerbated anti-Jewish feeling. Esther Webman, for example, a proponent of this school, wrote in 1994 that, and I quote, anti-Semitism did not exist in the traditional Islamic world. It is, in fact, a relatively new phenomenon gaining ground, particularly since the eruption of the Arab-Israeli conflict in the mid-20th century. The, close quote, the uh, perennialist view, by contrast, holds that this interpretation fails to take account of the sometimes virulent discrimination and the examples of persecution and murder experienced by Jews prior to the coming of the West in modern times to the Middle East. Such views seek to undermine the uh, view or the uh, uh, assertion of a golden age of Islamic tolerance in the High Middle Ages, the period between 950 and 1250 as usually counted. Uh, in, for example, Islamic Spain of the Middle Ages. They seek to undermine this uh, view by producing counterexamples of prejudice and violence against Jews in this period. They also seek to locate the roots of anti-Semitism in the Middle East within the text and praxis of Islam itself, noting examples of anti-Jewish sentiment in the Quran and the Hadith. Which of these interpretations best fits with the available historical record? To ascertain this, I will now attempt a brief survey of the Jewish experience 
in Muslim lands. I'll then seek some conclusions regarding the implications of the pervasive presence of anti-Semitism in the modern Middle East. Islam clashed with the Jews from its earliest period. Three Jewish tribes uh, lived in the area of Medina uh, at the time of the uh, apostolate, of, of the preaching rather, of the uh, prophet of Islam, uh, Muhammad. These were the Banu Nadir, the Banu, the Banu Kainuka, and the Banu Qurayza, who lived among the larger pagan community uh, uh, throughout the uh, oasis areas of uh, northern Arabia at that time. Little in detail is known of these Jewish tribes. They're often described by researchers indeed as Judaized Bedouin in that they appear to have differed in no significant way from the surrounding population and to have formed an accepted element of society. The conflict between these tribes and Muhammad began with his migration from Mecca to Medina, where the Jewish tribes rejected his apostolate and resisted his uh, political and military leadership, according to the Islamic sources. This conflict resulted in Muhammad's defeat of the Jewish tribes and the uh, extermination of one of them, the uh, Bani Qurayza. In the Quran, Hadith and Sunnah, the Jews of Medina are depicted as stubborn, rebelling against the commandments of God and seeking to kill his messengers. The Quran, Surah 5, verse 82 states that, and I quote, you will surely find that the people most hostile to the believers are the Jews and pagans, close quote. However, Classical Islamic literature has treated these episodes as fairly minor events in the history of Muhammad, which in any case ended with the utter defeat of the Jews. According to Surah 2 verse 61 in the Quran, and I quote, they were afflicted with humiliation and poverty and they felt the wrath of God because they used to disbelieve the signs of God and kill his messengers unjustly. This was because they disobeyed and transgressed." Close quote. Following Muhammad's death from the period 632 to 661 as usually uh, recorded, Arab Muslim forces launched successful attacks against the Byzantine and Persian empires, adding much of their territory to Islam's own new and growing empire. This period was led by Muhammad's successors, the first four caliphs who acted as both religious and political leaders. During the 7th century, the majority of uh, Middle Eastern Jewry had lived within the Byzantine Empire, whose territory included what are now Syria, Egypt, Israel, Jordan and Lebanon. Many of these communities had been residing in such cities as uh, Aleppo in modern-day Syria since biblical times under various rulers. Byzantine policy dictated that all non-Christians, including the Jews, were burdened with high taxes and strict religious restrictions. There was tremendous pressure at that time to convert to Christianity to avoid religious persecution. The Byzantines' greatest rival at the time. Both the Byzantine Empire and the Sassanid Empire failed to anticipate the full capacity of the Arab forces due to uh, their quick and unexpected rise. They were caught surprised by the Muslim attack. 
They were all but exhausted from decades of war against one another, and thus the Muslim victory was quick and complete. So with the conquest by Islam of areas outside of the Hijaz, a large number of ancient Jewish communities came under Islamic rule for the first time. The first and second pacts of Omar, named after the second caliph of Islam and Omar, Omar II, the Umayyad caliph respectively, codified the conditions under which Jews and Christians were to live under Islam. Whether the pact truly dates back to these uh, venerated figures or whether it was in fact introduced by later jurists who used these men's names to add authority to the document, this pact represents the basic text defining relations between Muslims on the one hand and the Ahl al-Kitab, the peoples of the book, that is Christians and Jews and later uh, Zoroastrians also under Islamic rule. According to the Pact of Omar, Jews and Christians were granted the right to practice their own religious rights. Protection of Christians and Jews and their property was also part of the pact. Manifesting their religion publicly or uh, converting anyone to it was prohibited, as was keeping their children from becoming Muslim. Jews and Christians were required to wear clothing or signs that differentiated them from Muslims. The public sphere was to be a completely Islamic environment. So dhimmis were prohibited from building or repairing places of worship without the permission of the Muslim leaders. Their places of worship could not be as high as mosques. Bells and the public display of crosses on churches were banned for Christians. To secure such rights as they were afforded by the pact, non-Muslims would pledge loyalty to their Muslim rulers and would pay a special poll tax, the famous uh, jizya, which people here I'm sure are familiar with, uh, for adult males. Their testimony in court would not be equal to that of a Muslim. The Jews could not bear arms or could not uh, ride a horse. Many of the conditions of the Pact of Omar are still upheld as the ideal model for the treatment of non-Muslims among orthodox classical uh, Muslim theologians. The conditions of the pact were authoritative. The level of enforcement, however, varied considerably, as shown by the existence of churches in parts of the Middle East, uh, constructed long after the Muslim conquests. In practice, at least, up to the 13th century, certain uh, regulations were not strictly enforced, especially when it came to Jews, who were generally able to integrate in Muslim lands better than Christians. In early Muslim Spain, for example, Jews were not obliged to dress differently from Muslims and often wore fine silk and linen apparel, according to the uh, historical record. Meanwhile, as evidence from the Cairo Geniza uh, makes clear, during the Fatimid uh, dynasty's rule in Egypt in the period 969 to 1171 CE, Jews were frequently able to get involved professionally in the Fatimid uh, government, uh, governance system. But the relatively peaceful life available to Jews as Dhimma was of course dependent on their remaining obedient. And the history of the period is replete with examples of the unfortunate fate of Jews who were perceived as having transgressed or got uh, above themselves. The writings by Jews from that period in the Cairo Geniza 
uh, introduces to a specific term, sinut, to refer to hostility from local Muslims toward Jews. The resentment over the appointment of Jews to positions of authority uh, occasionally spilled over into outright violence, according to the historical records. For example, uh, this sentiment is reflected in a contemporary poem by one Abu uh, Ishaq, who helped himself to incite a pogrom, a famous pogrom in Granada in the year 1066. And the poem goes, or a section of it, and I quote, says, Do not consider it a breach of faith to kill them. The breach of faith would be to let them carry on. They have violated our covenant with them. So how can you be held guilty against the violators? Here we find a manifestation of a distinct brand of Islamic anti-Semitism, significantly differing from its Western counterpart. It holds to the central view that the Jews are most hostile to Islam's revelations among humanity and are also prone to treachery in dealings with others to arrogant uh, self-righteousness, slaying Allah's messengers and prophets, and to other forms of evil conduct. A contemporary chron chronicle written by Sultan Abdullah of Granada in 1073 describes the massacre of between three to 4,000 Jews, mentioned it a moment ago, in December 1066 in the city. According to Abdullah, and I quote, both the common people and the nobles were disgusted by the cunning of the Jews, the notorious changes they had wrought in the order of things, and the positions they occupied in violation of their pact. Allah decreed their destruction on Saturday, December 31st, 1066. The Jew, Joseph ibn Nagrela, fled into the interior of the palace, but the mob pursued him, seized him, and killed him. They then put every Jew in the city to the sword and took vast quantities of their property. Close quotes. It is noteworthy that the massacre of the Jews of Granada led to the death of a greater number of Jews than the destruction, the famous destruction for students of, of Jewish history by the Crusaders of the Jewish communities of the Rhineland uh, 30 years earlier uh, at the outset of the First uh, Crusade. I have a personal interest in the latter massacre because my family name, uh, Spire, uh, comes from one of those uh, communities. Outbreaks of violence of the type of the Granada pogrom were the exception rather than the rule in the Islamic world. They took place usually relating to a sense that the Jews had got above themselves or to an external threat. In general, Jews and Christians under Muslim rulers were not subject to expulsion or the threat of expulsion. The one major exception to this rule, of course, being Arabia itself. The Caliph Omar expelled all Jews and Christians from the Hijaz area in line with the Hadith that two religions shall not remain in the land of the Arabs. But in significant ways, the life of Jews under Muslim rule did compare favorably with their lives in Christian Europe at the time. Jews were rarely forced to change their religion. Unlike in Europe, they were rarely confined in territorial or occupational ghettos, with the significant exceptions of Iran and uh, Morocco. They enjoyed freedom of worship and some autonomy in communal affairs. And while formally subject to a whole series of legal, fiscal and political disabilities, the application of these varied from time to time 
and place to place. The situation affecting Jewish and Christian communities in the High Middle Ages thus falls, of course, far short of the standards set in modern democracies. It compares favorably, however, with conditions prevailing in Western Europe at the time. It did not last, however. The relative tolerance afforded to Jews and Christians, remember, was dependent on their not being perceived as a threat. The view of the Jew as a defeated foe is key here. In the Islamic, as in the Christian foundational narratives, the Jew is a hostile and malevolent force. But unlike in the Christian context, the Jew's malevolence ends in defeat. As Lewis puts it, and I quote, this basic difference between the Jew's success against Christ and his failure against Muhammad had a decisive influence on the attitudes of the Jew-haters of the two religions. For the Christian, the Jew represented a dark and deadly power, capable of deeds of cosmic evil. For the Muslim, he might be hostile, cunning and vindictive, but he was weak and ineffectual, an object of ridicule, not fear." Close quote. This lack of dangerousness, or of perceived dangerousness, attributed to the Jews in the Muslim world, worked in their favour. But of course, it did so only in those periods when the Muslim host community felt itself sufficiently secure. As the Muslim world began to feel itself increasingly weak, put upon, surrounded, so it became increasingly suspicious of the non-Muslim communities in its midst, in its midst, and so their situation uh, began to decline. If we observe, for example, the harshly discriminatory uh, policy of the Berber al-Muravid dynasty who arrived in Spain in 1086, and the even more fanatical al-Muhad Berber Muslims after 1146-47 in Spain, it becomes clear that any notion of a golden age for Jews in Muslim Andalusia is largely a myth. The Almoravids directed their depredations mainly against the Christian Dimmi population. But the Almohads carried out widespread slaughter of Jews. This dynasty abolished the Dimmi system, offering Jews the choice of conversion, exile or death in many of the areas they conquered. The famous uh, Jewish philosopher and physician, Yosef uh, ben Maimon, or Maimonides, was forced to flee the Almohads with his family. But it is also important to note and remember that Maimonides and his family did not seek refuge in the Christian world, where at the time they could in no way have expected greater, treat, better treatment, but rather they made their way to Egypt, where famously Maimonides became a physician at the court of Salah al-Din. So to sum up then, the position of the Jews under Islam from its inception was one of institutionalized legal inferiority. This inferiority had no exception, but its implementation varied from time to time and from place to place. The harshness of Muslim rule tended to correlate with the level of confidence and security felt by the Muslim rulers and their community. 
where they felt reason to suspect their Jewish or Christian subjects, so the harshness of their rule tended to increase. As the confidence of the Muslim dominion began to subside, as enemies began to attack its borders, so its tolerance of non-Muslim minorities declined. And as the Muslim world began to become influenced by Western ideas, so Western anti-Semitism or Western-style anti-Semitism began to appear among Muslim communities. This introduced a new virulence and new motifs into views of the Jews prevalent in the region. The arrival of the distinctive Christian type of anti-Semitism came into the Islamic world in several stages. It began in the High Middle Ages with Christian converts to Islam. The second stage came with the Ottoman expansion into Europe, which brought large numbers of Greek Orthodox Christians under Muslim rule. The blood libel was endemic in these areas, and it came to the notice of the Ottoman authorities through the disturbances this would cause at Easter time in their new uh, Christian dominions. This was the first time, by the way, that this particular libel had been known in Muslim lands. In the course of the 19th century, accusations in the Muslim world of ritual murder committed by Jews became almost commonplace, cropping up all over the empire, most famously, of course, in Damascus uh, in 1840. The real penetration of modern-style anti-Semitism, however, came in the 19th century. It began among the Christian Arab communities who had the closest contacts with the West. The Christians had economic and commercial as well as religious reasons for opposing uh, the uh, Jews who were their commercial competitors. And during the second half of the 19th century, the first Arabic translations of European anti-Semitic writings were published, mainly from the French uh, originals. The very first was a tract published in Beirut in 1869, purporting to be the work of a Moldavian rabbi who had converted to Christianity. The work detailed the uh, various supposed horrors of Jewish ritual practice and uh, the Jewish religion. The introduction of the Talmudic theme in Muslim anti-Jewish polemics, very much well known and common nowadays, also dates from this period and from Christian sources. Of course, the entry of Christian-style anti-Semitism into the Muslim world in the 19th century was not taking place in a vacuum. Rather, it forms part of a larger picture in which the Christian West, having overtaken the Muslim world in terms of societal and technological uh, development, was now beginning to physically encroach upon the domains of Islam. By the beginning of the 20th century, much of the Islamic world had been conquered by the European empires. Two uh, related movements arose to combat Western power in the Middle East. These were Arab nationalism and uh, Islamism. Each of these movements claimed to represent the authentic response of the region to Western incursion. But each also in its own way was deeply influenced by Western ideas. Arab nationalism through such writers as Satya al-Husri, later Michel Aflaq, Salah al-Din al-Bitar, adopted the German-style romantic and organic uh, type of nationalism. Islamism also bears many of the hallmarks of a nationalist revival movement, albeit one which sees the Islamic Ummah 
as the community which has been invaded and which needs to revive its authentic consciousness and practice in order to resist and fight back against invasion. These movements emerged in the ferment of the early 20th century. They were coterminous with the emergence of modern Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Though rivals to one another, both Arab nationalism and Islamism are deeply permeated with anti-Jewish ideas and images in their literature and propaganda. The rise and triumph of Zionism and the emergence of the State of Israel represent a core trauma for the Islamic world in modernity. As we have seen, the traditional Islamic view of the Jews is one which might be described as contemptuous but also largely indifferent. The Jews were a subaltern, a, a submerged uh, people with a clear inferior place in Islamic society. That such a people had successfully rebelled against this status and by doing so had even uh, defeated Arab and Muslim armies and had re-established themselves in their ancient homeland, a place also of high importance to the Arab and Muslim worlds, represented a calamity of the first order. The reversal of this situation remains a matter of immense importance for millions throughout the Islamic world. The establishment of Israel thus constitutes a focal point for the coming together of a number of elements of central importance in the contemporary Islamic world. The sense of humiliation at the hands of the Christian uh, West is personified perhaps most strongly in the victory of the Jews on Islamic soil over Muslims. This sense of humiliation and the desire for revenge is fueled paradoxically by the permeation of traditionally Christian ideas regarding the Jews as a noxious and powerful enemy into the Muslim world as a result of Western encroachment. Such ideas were alien to traditional Islamic society, as we have seen. But the Muslim world is today the place in which they flourish, while such ideas have retreated to the fringes in the West. Muslim Brotherhood founder Hassan al-Banna conceived, for example, a view of the Jews and of Zionism as a sort of occult cosmic force against which it is a holy, du a holy duty to fight. Such ideas remain manifest today, for example, in the views of the Israel-based Islamist leader Raid Salah, who after the 9-11 uh, terror attacks wrote, and I quote, that the one responsible for this act was the unique mover who wanted to carry out the bombings in Washington and New York in order to provide the Israeli establishment with a way out of its entanglements. The unique mover found a suitable way to warn the 4,000 Jews who worked at the World Trade Center so that they did not come to work on September 11th, 2001, close quote. It's the traditional Muslim view of the Jews. Rather, the two have joined together, combining into the image of the Jew commonly presented in the Islamic world today as simultaneously powerful and yet unworthy of respect, violent and yet cowardly, 
and equally paradoxically familiar, indeed perhaps eternal, and yet also somehow inauthentic. This complex of ideas, drawing from traditional Islamic, from Christian, and from modern uh, secular leftist notions, constitutes the prism through which Jews and Israel are seen today in the mainstream of the Arab and Islamic uh, worlds. To conclude then, both modernist and perennialist explanations for anti-Semitism in the modern Middle East contain elements of truth I wish to uh, contend. The virulent anti-Semitism in evidence in the Middle East today is indeed of fairly recent vintage, dating back to the 19th century. It is indeed the product of the Islamic world's encounter with the West and its sense of subjugation felt perhaps most strongly and acutely in the example of the emergence and flourishing of Israel. But this sentiment is rooted in and makes sense only with reference to the older Islamic idea of the Jew as a member of an inferior, defeated people. Modern anti-Semitism in the Middle East draws heavily on this heritage of contempt and feeling of superiority. Indeed, it could cogently be argued that it is precisely the Jews' status traditionally as a despised and somewhat ridiculed figure in the Middle East, which makes his current rise and ascendancy a matter of such anguish in large parts of the Middle East, and the restoration of the proper order of things uh, such a matter of urgency. That this despised figure can rise up demonstrates just how far the Middle East and Islamic world have fallen in the sentiments of mil millions of Middle Easterners today. I would suggest that it is, by way of conclusion, that it is this aspect above all others which lends anti-Semitism in the contemporary Middle East its peculiar fervor and which is likely to ensure that it will be with us for a long time until, indeed, I would suggest, and on this I'll close, that a radically new way of viewing both recent and older history emerges into the mainstream and into mainstream discussion uh, in the Middle East. That, I realize, has been a long and exhaustive survey. I hope you found it interesting. I'll be happy to take your questions. Thank you very much. Okay, we've got at least a half hour for questions. Mr. Creedon. I'd like to, to ask, you didn't touch on it, why does Islam make such a claim on Jerusalem when Mohammed, according to what I've read, never, never visited Jerusalem? Uh, you want to? We can have a general discussion if you like, or I can. I don't mind. I'm happy Let's to be quiet. Let the speaker answer the no. questions, and then we will worry about. We have one question at a time and an answer, right? That's if yeah, that's, that's cool. You, yeah. Unless you, I'm, I'm very uh, fine with that. First of all, the, Jerusalem has an important role in early uh, uh, Islamic political history, um, and it's worth going into some detail about this. Um, it was the uh, the Quran mentions that uh, Muhammad ascends to heaven from the furthest mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Of course, the 
the writings themselves don't say where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is situated. Um, during the period of Islamic uh, dynastic wars in the early years, of the, in the early centuries of uh, the religion, the uh, Umayyad dynasty was uh, dominant in uh, Damascus, its capital. And they were looking for sites of historic importance to Islam, of historic justification for, for, for their dominance in the locality which they controlled. They were aware of the holiness of the Temple Mount area uh, from, from its being a well-known place of, of, of holiness both to Jews and, and subsequently to Christians. They therefore chose to build a mosque on that area and to uh, denote this mosque, that this mosque was indeed the place from which Muhammad had ascended to heaven. So from this point onwards, Jerusalem then is, is given uh, a holy or a status of importance uh, for Islam. So whilst it doesn't go right the way back and indisputably to the earliest sources, it goes rather back to the politics of the early Islamic world. This has been around for a great deal of time, for over a millennium, and therefore it's it's, from this point one can begin to understand the importance uh, of Jerusalem. Um, if one wishes to make another, or perhaps a deeper interpretation of this, I think one should also note that Islam has a problem with the loss of uh, Islamic lands or areas of Islamic uh, rule to non-Muslims. That is something which Islam certainly finds to be a great calamity. As a result, sites which might well have fallen into disrepair or into uh, lack of attention over a long period of time will acquire attention if they are lost to Islam. And I think Jerusalem can certainly be cited as an example of this. A city which was not particularly uh, central or developed or invested in during the period in which the Ottoman Empire, in which Islamic Empire ruled over it, but which once it was lost to Islam became then invested with much of the traditional uh, significance and centrality which it had formerly held. So the question of the loss of the city and the importance of recovering lost territories, in my estimation at least, should be borne in mind when considering the current Islamic view of Jerusalem, no less than the traditional importance of the city, which is significant too uh, in, in the course of the history of uh, Islam. Um, the story that you've told is one that doesn't really make it into the mainstream media in, in the West. Uh, we, we hear about the Arab Spring, we hear about the fluorescence of, of democracy and Arab hopes and dreams for the Middle East. Uh, but this kind of story, even in the Arab Spring, many occasions of, of uh, stars of David on uh, uh, targets of, of uh, the, the revolutions and so on. Um, and uh, so, in, in a sense, um, uh, aren't we, we're preaching to the choir a little bit here. Uh, how do we get this story into the mainstream media? How, how do we get them to wreck it? Now, universities are no better, worse if anything. It's highly politically incorrect to talk about the things that you've spoken about. Mm. Um, uh, you're likely to be accused of Islamophobia if you uh, refer to 
anti-Semitism either in the tradition or in the contemporary Islamic world. So how do we how do we get this understanding beyond this room? Well, it's a good question. I'm afraid in terms of uh, strategy for what should be done in, in Montreal, I'm, I guess I'm not the, the best man for the job. I mean, I'm a researcher and a journalist rather than a, an advocate or an organizer. I will say the following, however. Uh, something very bad and very problematic has happened uh, in terms of the academic study of the Middle East uh, in recent years in Western universities, in Western academia, I presume also in Canada, but also throughout the Western world. And, this, is some, and, and this, this very negative trend uh, which holds that much of the history of the contemporary Middle East is the result of the interference of Western colonialism and the attempt by the region to recover from it. This uh, very negative trend has led, in my estimation, and let me speak frankly as I like to do, has led in my estimation not to an interesting uh, rival school of study to the one which I represent, which would be welcome, but rather largely to uh, an attempt to blot out serious research uh, of any kind and to the emergence of so-called Middle East experts who are nothing of the kind, um, but who are in fact political advocates. This is a huge problem. It's a huge problem for many ways, but it's mainly a huge problem for the study of the Middle East. Because the problem is that the Middle East is of massive importance to all of us and all of our lives. But if the academy is not producing Middle East experts with a knowledge of regional languages and a fully formed knowledge of uh, regional history, then academia fails in its duty to the broader society, in my opinion. That is to in enlighten the broader society on an issue of vital importance. And I think this is a central mistake. This is, this is the central process which has taken place. And that then permeates out, you know, bad, bad scholarship then permeates out to bad analysis, to bad journalism, and to an absence of knowledge in the broader, subsequently in the broader society. So I would suggest that a key issue for all of us is, you know, the loss of academia and the need to take back the areas of serious study of the Middle East. That seems to me to be where the battle, a long, long-term battle, needs to be initially fought. And once we can get serious research going again, then other things can also begin to percolate out from that. But that seems to me to be a central uh, battle. I myself and others in our own way, as journalists, as researchers, are, are trying our best to, uh, to look at the region seriously and to disseminate what we have. But this is something which requires also organization and also uh, focus. And so that's the best I can uh, suggest to you. I mean, we have to win the battle intellectually. The fact of the matter is that if people, you know, if, if, we, if we have a dominant sort of hegemony in the discussion of, view, of a view that rather than taking on arguments like mine that I've just made or others, seeks to shut them down by accusations of Islamophobia or, or, or worse, racism, then we can't have, even begin to have the discussion. We have to first of all discredit you know, that whole trend, that whole outlook in order to force a space you know, for serious study and research to then take place. But it's, I'm telling you what to be done, not how to do it. I'm afraid how to do it in the specific context of Canada will be something you will have to decide and not I. In uh, uh, 2015, it will be the 70th anniversary of the Second World War. Uh, there's a few books that have been banned. I, I might be wrong about that, but uh, they were written during the Second World War, and now they're going to be 
available to the public. Now, obviously one of the books is Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I understand that book had been out in some forms. But, you know, so what can you say? That that would be a fire point for you know, anti-Semitism. Well, okay. Yeah, in terms of the Middle East, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry to uh, to inform you. I mean, in terms of the Middle East, you know, both Mein Kampf and also most of the classic texts, if we can call them that, of anti-Semitism, are, are freely available in Arabic translations on this or that uh, of this or that uh, official or unofficial type. So, for anti-Semites in the Middle East, you know, it's not that. Anyway, there'll be a, a new danger from Mein Kampf being, and I guess you're referring to something I'm not aware of, but that it'll be now published in Canada or in the West. Yeah, okay. In the Middle East, it's banned. Okay, in the Middle East, it's not banned. And in the Middle East, uh, Mein Kampf, and more importantly, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, which is a slightly more lit, for those of you who've read both of them, or had the pleasure of reading both of them dubiously, it's a slightly more literate, slightly less historical, and, and slightly less hysterical and obviously repulsive uh, attempt than is Hitler's book. So the Protocols consequently is a stronger piece of propaganda than, than Mein Kampf. Both of them are freely available at marketplaces and in bookshops throughout the Arabic-speaking world. And both of them play uh, a very uh, negative and nefarious role. I mean, it's difficult to convey to people, you know, except for others who've traveled in the Middle East and, and, and spent time there, the extent to which these kind of ideas are mainstream in the Arab world. And the reason why it's difficult to convey is because they are, of course, so very not mainstream in the West. And it sounds weird, or it sounds like I'm making propaganda or trying to push some point forward by saying, no, these ideas are absolutely in the mainstream perception of the mainstream society in the Arabic-speaking world. But they are. It is not, you don't have to go outside of the mainstream to find people in the Arabic-speaking world, often educated people, often people who are charming and positive people in, every, in most other ways, you know, if that's any kind of consolation, who believe that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion you know, are absolute truth and are, uh, are a genuine documentation of a Jewish plot for the domination of the modern world. And likewise, Mein Kampf and other such texts. I'm afraid the problem in the Middle East is already there. They're freely available and they're having a very major influence. Sir, I have a question in two parts. It's a more or less clarification. So I came in a few minutes late, mm. but I wanted to know if, if you define anti-Semitism, the word, when it came into being, because uh, in your talk, you referred also to anti-Zionism and anti-Israel, and those are mixed up in the, in the, in the minds of people. Mm. And so I just wanted a, a bit of a clarification. The second part of my question is, is the more serious one. When you, when you say that the Jewish people suffered more under Christianity than the Muslims, what basis did you use in order to give that kind of a statement? Uh, is that the number of Jews killed or the number of Jews that were expelled from the countries? Uh, personally, on, on a personal level, since I come from the Middle East and I live in those countries, mm. I, I don't think you can define my suffering with the suffering of the Christian, of the Jews and the Christian regime and say, well, you suffered less or, or he suffered more than you. So I just wanted to know what is the basis of your comparison. Yeah. 
vis-a-vis um, -vis the Middle East, um, in, I can refer you back to my text. What I said was not that uh, Jews suffered more in the Christian world than the, in, in, than the Middle East in modernity, but rather in the course of the greater part of, of history. So unless you were living in the Muslim world in the 12th century, I don't mean to be uh, sarcastic, but I'm referring to, you know, to the earlier period, so I could, not to the later period, just so I can be clear. So you, I think you misunderstood what I said, and that's the answer to what I'm telling you. Is that, are you referring to the number of years of population? Oh, sure, absolutely. I'm referring to the, the, sure, the, num sure, the numbers killed, the numbers expelled, yeah? the nature of legal restrictions on Jews, in the larger part of the Christian world compared to the Muslim world? Absolutely. If one, compares, if one takes, for example, uh, the early period, the, the 11th or 12th centuries, then undoubtedly the legal restrictions, the, the, the dimma system imposed on Jews in, uh, in, in, in Muslim Spain offered a uh, less virulent form of oppression to, for example, the expulsion or slaughter of the entire Jewish population of England yeah? carried out in 1290. Absolutely. I mean, there is, there is mass slaughter and then there is discrimination. Instances of mass slaughter, instances of expulsion, yeah? an absence of any legal protection of any kind for Jews, of the kind which the Muslim Al-Muhads, for example, brought in into uh, Muslim Andalusia in the 12th century, yeah? were common, if not ubiquitous, in the Christian West of the time. The actions of the Crusaders, for example, you know, the, the mass slaughter of Jews undertaken by the Crusaders, have parallels in the Muslim world. And I mentioned the pogrom of, in Granada of 1066. But according to the historical record of the time, they were significantly fewer, in example, than were taking place in the Christian world. So these are the kinds of indications. And by the way, I, you know, I absolutely do not mean to, and for this reason I want to clarify what I said, and I understand from the way that you heard what I said exactly why you asked the question. So I want to just make it absolutely clear. I'm not referring to, in this instance, to modernity. That is to say, since the Enlightenment, you know, since the birth of secularism 300, 400 years ago in the Western world, you know, the West has achieved levels of tolerance and levels of, uh, of integration for Jews in certain parts of the West, not all, but in certain parts of the West, which of course outstrip anything which was remotely achieved by the Muslim world in, uh, in antiquity or, in the, Middle, or not in, in the Middle Ages, rather. But if we go back to that earlier time, then yes, I do think this is, uh, uh, this is the situation. Um, with regard to anti-Semitism, again, it's a fair question. Of course, it began to be used, as we know, coined by the, uh, the anti-Semitic uh, uh, Austrian politician Wilhelm Marr in the late uh, 19th century. But, uh, yeah, I mean it to, be, uh, to mean prejudice and discrimination and, uh, and hatred towards, uh, towards Jews. I use it in the broader sense here, in that I would also include in it uh, theological hatred of, of Jews, not only racial hatred. So it's a fair question, and... and that's the, uh, the way I've used it here. Over there. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. It's okay. Should be next. It's okay. Talking about modernity, I think the instances of pogroms under the Russians, and of course under Hitler, outdid anything, that any tolerance that was achieved during the Enlightenment. I think the Jews lost more people in the Hitler era than ever before because they had technology to do this. Yeah. I think um, the Jews would have uh, suffered more in earlier times if technology was available, and the Germans had this, so they, they were able to kill more than six million Jews yes. in, in a very few years. I agree with you, and that is why, and if I'm required to quote myself again, I will, that is why I said, in parts of the West, and not others, 
Jews achieved a level of, such as Canada, for example, Jews achieved a level of integration and tolerance which has no resemblance to anything achieved by the Islamic world in the Middle Ages. That's what I said five minutes ago. I absolutely stand by the statement, and, you know, I hope it's now clear. When I say parts of the West, I obviously do not include Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia. I hope we're now clear on this. Let's hear from some yes. students, please. Hi. Uh, I would like to have some clarification about uh, modern anti-Semitism in the Middle East. Yes. Uh, I lived a little bit in Israel, not five years, but in and out, maybe. And um, I've seen a difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, especially mm. in the countries surrounding Israel. Mm. And I would like to know if uh, right now, in the current situation, after the uh, Arab Spring, are we talking more about anti-Zionism than anti-Semitism? Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. First of all, let me answer by referring back to some of the, uh, the uh, figures quoted in the early part of the talk. The Pew Research Poll did not ask about attitudes towards Israel or Zionism. It asked about attitudes towards Jews. Yeah? And it found that between 95 and 100% of those polled in three Arab countries uh, bordering uh, Israel Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt, between 95 and 100% of those uh, polled had either a favorable or uh, an unfavorable or very unfavorable attitude towards Jews. This does not relate to Israel or to Zionism or anything else. This you know, finds a quite astonishingly and unprecedented and uncomparably high level of hostility or negative views towards Jews in those Arab countries, which has absolutely no parallel anywhere else in any other country, in any other part of the world. So this is, I think, a, Good statistics. This is the pure research. You know, this is not the World Zionist Organization doing the poll. It's the uh, in Lebanon. This would be a challenge for them also. This is uh, uh, this is the Pew Research Center, one of the most globally respected polling centers. So this indicates to us, I think, you know, the level of anti-Jewish uh, feeling uh, that exists. I would refer you also to to the example of Pr President Morsi in the mosque recently in Cairo. Very very problematic. Again, the preacher, a popular preacher in, in Cairo you know, speaks about Allah, you know, invokes or uh, requests of, of God, you know, to destroy the Jews in their entirety. The president of Egypt gives a fervent, on, on film, on the internet, on YouTube, you know, gives a fervent amen to this desire and to this wish. The preacher does not say, please destroy adherence to the revisionist trend within Zionism, uh, or to Likud Central Committee members. He says, Jews. Right. So, yeah. So, so one second. So I'll, I'll, I'll certainly give you the chance to come back, and I, I, you know. But just to conclude the, the response. So these examples, which of course are a, a, a tip of a massive iceberg that I could bring, you know, are examples of hostility toward Jews, not towards Israel, not towards Zionism. Let me just conclude by, since we're talking about our experiences in the various countries, by saying that, you know, I find it strange that I. People who travel in the Arabic-speaking world, you know, rapidly come across the... One of the first Arabic words they learn is Muammara, right? Conspiracy. Everyone knows who the Muammara is, who is responsible for it. This is part of mainstream Arab discussion. Right? You know, it really it is. I'm not making it up. I've been there and I know what I'm talking about. In other words, these kind of stereotypical views to which, which looking at Israel, but which see Israel in a completely strange and surreal light as the center of a global conspiracy, you know, 
threatening the entirety of the Arab world, I would argue this cannot be defined under anti-Zionism. Yes, it is, this is focused on Israel. But it is looking at Israel in such a way, which it's only possible to look at Israel in this way if you are also introducing previously existing stereotypes of the Jew as powerful, as noxious, as conspiratorial, as threatening, and so on and so forth. So I would, I would argue that uh, both according to available statistics and certainly according to my own empirical uh, experience, such as it is, not, not total but not inconsiderable, there is a virulent and incomparable level of hostility to Jews throughout the Arabic-speaking world, which cannot be found anywhere else in the world today, and which resembles levels of hatred towards the Jews, which have been found in other places, in other times, at the worst and most darkest periods of Jewish history. Certain sectors in Israel and here too, that um, if we find a political solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, that there's going to be a decrease in hatred and better relations in between the different peoples. And I'm just wondering, based on your understanding of um, modern and Eastern anti-Semitism, what do you think about that idea? Well, again, I think we have some uh, empirical evidence to look to because, after all, we have had uh, a peace process in existence in the Middle East. I'm not sure if it still exists, but it certainly did exist for quite a long period of time in the region. Beginning, we would usually say, in 1977, with the, you know, the beginnings of the Israel-Egyptian uh, negotiations. Now, as we know, that Israel-Egyptian negotiation was successfully concluded and Israel concluded its first peace agreement with an Arab state, with Egypt, in uh, 1979. Now, 1979 is already over 30 years uh, ago, so we have 30 years, or a little bit more than 30 years, of observation of Egyptian society specifically, you know, in which we can look at an example of an, of an Arab society at peace with Israel, having concluded the conflict, or its own conflict at least, with Israel, and we can then ask ourselves, what happened? You know, we can observe, did, was there a decrease in hostility to Jews in Israel in the period? Was there an increase in hostility? The uh, answer is very clear. Uh, Egyptian civil society and Egyptian uh, cultural production you know, in no way whatsoever became any less hostile either to Israel or Jews over the last 30 years. Indeed, I would suggest to you that because of issues in Egyptian society which are not directly related to Israel and to the Israeli-Egyptian conflict, but because of, of certain trends in Egyptian society, uh, hostile, hostility to Israel and Jews has, if anything, grown more uh, apparent over the last 30 years. That is because, of course, of the rise of political Islam uh, in Egypt over the relevant time. But this is not to get the so-called secular nationalists off the hook. We should not have any illusions because President Mubarak, of course, was also on record as you know, expressing anti-Semitic statements and hostilities to Jews, you know, freely available uh, statements made by him. So the answer is that if we take Egypt as, uh, as an example, and it's not a, not a bad example, the first country to conclude peace with, uh, with Israel, you know, civil society's attitudes towards the Jews, civil society's attitudes towards Israel have not been transformed by peace. And if anything, if they have been transformed at all in the period in question, have actually grown more hostile. So I think what we need to conclude from this is that the notion that uh, hostility towards Jews in the contemporary Middle East 
is largely conditioned by the absence of the outbreak of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I think does not hold up to uh, empirical uh, examination. I'm afraid I would even suggest, and allow me to be, uh, again, to be, uh, to be very frank here, I would even suggest an opposite causation in which the attitudes towards Jews and Israel prevalent in the Arabic-speaking Middle East are one of the central causes preventing the possibility of a peace agreement and of real consensual peace between Israel and its neighbors. Over there. How do uh, Arab and Muslims anti-Semitism in the Middle East, how does the presence of another religion, the Baha'i faith, uh, interact with uh, these different uh, analyses? And excuse me for missing the beginning part of the lecture. I really couldn't be here at 5.30. So. And uh, I'm just very interested. I have a number of questions that I want to ask the tape or just make it around. No, I, I didn't talk about uh, the Baha'i faith. I didn't talk about... First of all, it's important to understand uh, that the traditional place of Judaism and Christianity uh, in, in Islam and in the Islamic uh, domain is, uh, is unique, is, is not comparable to that of other global religions. Actually, that's not true. I need to add Zoroastrianism, which also is usually also considered to be one of the people's, one of the religions of the book, the, uh, the peoples of the book, Ahl al-Kitab. Right? This affords Jews and Christians traditionally a very specific place in Muslim society. Now it is a subordinate place. This is something I talked about a bit earlier on, but I'll repeat it and I'm sure people won't mind. Um, you know, they are given a, a specific subordinate but, but noted and, and, and codified place in Muslim society. Now that place does not apply to all non-Muslims living under Islam. It applies to Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians living under Islam. Now the Baha'i faith, of course, did not exist in the early stages of Islam's uh, of Islam's uh, uh, conquests and of Islam's emergence. The Baha'i faith only emerged in early modernity, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Um, the, problem for the, the problem has been for the Baha'is and indeed for other faiths not considered to apply, to qualify under the rules of peoples of the book, is that they have no rights afforded them in traditional, by traditional Islamic uh, documents and, and, uh, and jurisprudence as a result of which they have come under very difficult uh, situations indeed and a great deal of uh, oppression and of course in, in Iran today and elsewhere we know continue to suffer from a great deal of uh, oppression. It is not, may I venture, uh, entirely a coincidence that the main center of worship, if I'm not mistaken, of the Baha'i faith uh, in the Middle East is in Haifa. That is to say it is in one of the few areas of the Middle East, not, current, not currently, and we hope also not for a long time, uh, under the rule and domination of Islam. Um, the Baha'is and other non-monotheistic peoples or non-monotheistic faiths have a particularly hard time of it under uh, Islam and the Baha'is find themselves geographically in the, in the Muslim space and therefore they suffer correspondingly. But if we look also at Muslim attitudes towards Hinduism in the point at which the Muslim world collides with uh, Hinduism, we find there also a, uh, you know, a very, very deep and deeply problematic, I would argue, attitude towards what are regarded as pagan religions, which are simply seen as having no place at all uh, in God's revelation from the point of view of Islam, and therefore no corresponding uh, legal position in the way that Christians and Jews traditionally have. Yes, please. Uh, I, I, I heard that you've been to Syria and that you have yes. uh, had the opportunity to see uh, what the uh, rebellion is what's going on there, the situation, I was hoping that you would talk about it if you don't mind. 
I'm happy to talk about it. Would, then, would you like to ask me a specific question, or I can just talk in general? Well, well, Sure. Um, let me, so let me answer that, and let me first of all just say to people, because not everyone necessarily uh, you know, knows that I was recently in Syria and, and so on, so let me just say I, I visited Syria twice this uh, year, uh, the first time in February and the second time in late September, uh, just about a month ago. Um, the first time to Idlib province in, in the north of the country, and the second time to Aleppo governor, and then Aleppo city, uh, just next to Idlib. Um, on both occasions, I was... Uh, uh, accompanied by, or I was accompanying uh, people from the rebel forces and from the uh, political opposition to the Assad regime, for fairly obvious reasons, I wasn't able to uh, interact with or, or question or speak to people who supported the regime, still less people who are actively engaged in uh, defending the regime. But I, it means that I can answer your question, I think, with some degree of, of knowledge vis-a-vis -vis the, the, rebe the rebels, the rebellion specifically? And the answer is as, as follows. First of all, this revolt is without a doubt uh, primarily a revolt of the uh, Sunni Arab uh, section of the Syrian population. And in fact, I would even put it more specifically, the Sunni Arab rural section of the Syrian population against uh, the Alawi regime, which they perceive as having discriminated against them also ethnically and religiously and also economically. Uh, and so you know, that's the force that's driving this rebellion forward. That is to say that the heartlands of the Syrian rebellion are also the heartlands of conservative Sunni Islam, of Arab conservative Sunni Islam, because there are Kurdish Sunni Muslims in Syria too, uh, in, in the country. Which means that almost by its nature, Yes, this rebellion will tend to have a conservative Sunni Islamic uh, character. Now, that's not the same as saying that the rebellion is therefore obviously and inevitably going to be controlled and run by Al-Qaeda or, or by the Muslim Brothers or still less by, uh, by Al-Qaeda. That's where it started, starts from. But from my own observation of, uh, of the rebellion, I can say that this is a rebellion which has no coherent central leadership of any kind. Rather, what it is, the armed revolt against Bashar Assad, is a conglomeration of various different uh, localized brigades and battalions which loosely cooperate with each other and which sometimes don't cooperate with each other at all. So depending on who you meet and who you speak to, you can get a very different impression. Now within that picture of loosely uh, organized local battalions and brigades, there are some which are Sunni Islamist in nature. There are some which are extreme Sunni Islamist, which are Al-Qaeda, Salafi uh, in nature. And there are some which are also secular. Now, I've interviewed some of the leaders of the, the Liwa al-Tawhid, the Tawhid Brigade in Aleppo City, which is the largest single military unit operating on behalf of the rebellion in Aleppo, in the key front of Aleppo City. And this Tawhid Brigade uh, is undoubtedly, ideologically, uh, is undoubtedly uh, ideologically Muslim Brotherhood type Islamist in nature. There are other forces in Aleppo which I've observed 
which are undoubtedly uh, uh, Salafi, jihadi in nature. And there are also others which are secular. But what we notice and note is that it is the Islamist brigades which have the clearest strategy, the Islamist brigades which have the clearest long-term vision. Most of the secular forces just want to bring down Assad and whatever comes next, they'll sort it out. The Islamists have a clear sense of what they want to build, of the Islamic State they want to create, one. And secondly, and this is crucial to note, it is the Islamist forces which have been the main recipients of such international aid as has been made available to the rebel forces in Syria. That is, and here I think Western policy has to uh, justify itself too. That is to say, the West, the United States, basically, chose to not get involved in Syria and chose to contract out the support for the rebellion to three countries, Turkey, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Many of us who are analysts of Syrian politics and of the rebellion wrote or said at the time, if you want to contract out the management of the rebellion to Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Turkey, don't be surprised if what you get is a Sunni Islamist rebellion. Who exactly would you expect these countries will choose to arm and support? Of course they'll choose the Sunni Islamists, and they have done. Which means that while it may well be arguable that this is just Sunni Islamism's moment in the Arab Middle East, and that this rebellion started out from the most rural, conservative Sunni parts of the country, it is also, the West I think must also bear a measure of blame and responsibility for the fact that the strongest and uh, most powerful growing forces in the Syrian uh, rebel side right now are those of an Islamist nature. So, over there. Um, how do you think anti Zionism and anti Semitism are related? So, do you think that anti Semitism is the main force behind anti Zionism, or do you think there is something else involved? And um, another part of this question is. What do you think is the root of, um, of this activity on campus, you know, of anti-Israel activity on campus, and um, what does anti-Semitism have to do with it, and what can we do to, um, to sort of prevent it and debunk it? Yeah, that's a huge couple of questions, but let me, not at all, it's fine. Um, look, with regard to the connection between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, certainly in the Middle Eastern context, it is quite impossible empirically, not only theoretically, to separate the two. That is to say, it's just, you, you know, anti-Zionists who have no prejudice of any kind whatsoever against Jews, in my experience, are just pretty thin on the ground. It's very hard to find them. Now, I think that the figures back me up on this. In other words, when I quote, I don't mean to go on and on about the Pew Research Poll. It's not Torah Sinai, right? But it's a useful tool to note that anti-Jewish feeling appears to be more or less ubiquitous in these societies. So it seems to me that, an that the anti-Zionism, if what we mean by anti-Zionism, I think we do mean this, is the desire to destroy the legally recognized sovereign state of Israel, a very strange and extremist desire. I mean, anti-Zionism is a strange... Uh, so I'm, I'm starting off the point. Let me just examine another point. In 2012, in my view, the term anti-Zionism is a meaningless term. And let me say why, for the following reason. Because if you have a political movement, a national movement, which wishes to bring a state into existence, then it is quite legitimate to support it or to oppose it. There were Jewish anti-Zionists, and not a few of them, prior to 1948. There were Bundists, there were Jewish communists. Yeah? 
you can, you, I'm here in Canada, so let me, let me have fun and make the following historical comparison. Yeah? Prior to 1776, in, in the country to the south of this one, it would have been quite legitimate to have made a case for the coming to existence of the United States of America, and equally, as people here will know, equally legitimate to make a case that North America should stay in the hands of the British Crown. Once the United States is formed, once Israel is formed, once the Republic of Ireland is formed, once uh, France is formed, people who wish to destroy it become something of a quite different nature. They're not just people who oppose this or that political ideology, which is entirely legitimate. They're people who are making a strange and extremist demand in which a particular country, legally recognized, whose people wish its existence to continue, should be destroyed and wiped out of existence. That is a strange and extremist demand. In my view, the term anti-Zionism used in 2012 is an attempt to obfuscate that fact, is an attempt to pretend that the strange and extremist desire to destroy a people and a country is in fact simply the objection to this or that political philosophy which most of us would see as being a, a quite legitimate thing to do to challenge this or that political philosophy. So the term itself, I would suggest, in 2012 is a lie. This then brings me to the second part of the uh, understanding of the second part of your question. If this term in itself is a falsehood, if this term in itself is an attempt to conceal something quite different, namely the desire for politicide, the unique desire to remove of all the countries in the world the only one that is based on Jewish self-determination, then I think my answer to the question becomes quite obvious. This in itself is a form of singling out and prejudice against Jews, and therefore in real terms, in serious terms, uh, there's no distinguishing between the two, except to say that anti-Zionism is a kind of curtain. This term anti-Zionism is a kind of curtain behind which hatred of Jews and a desire for Jews to not have the same rights as everybody else is, uh, is, is disguised behind. Um, how can we uh, defeat this and challenge it on campus and elsewhere? Again, I'm not uh, an organizer in uh, the English-speaking world, so I'm probably not the best person to try and answer this. But from my own particular place, I can answer it by saying that getting the truth out there, you know, getting the truth out there is the best way to discredit it. That's easier said than done, but that's what has to happen, and that's what eventually will happen. We have historical knowledge. We have historical facts on our side. We have intellectual rigor and academic rigor on our side. The other side is telling, has a lie at the center of its claims, as does not. Let me just refer you to a, an, anecdote, an anecdote or a scene from a, a movie that I uh, like very much, which is a Polish movie made in the early 80s about the Solidarity Movement in Poland. And there's a scene in it in the late 1970s between two activists of the Free Trade Union Movement, a father and a son in the city of Gdansk in Poland just after they've been crushed once again by the communist uh, forces. And the son asks his father, why, why do you remain so optimistic about the fact that we're eventually going to win this? And the father says to the son, for the following reason, because no lie can prevail for long. That's what Birkut in the, in the film Man of Iron by Andrei Vaida, a wonderful film, said in Gdansk in 1968. And of course he was proven correct 21 years later. I operate, we should operate on a similar uh, faith. No lie can prevail for long. There is currently a lie that is being spread in the Western world. Getting the truth out there is the best way to, uh, to discredit it, I think. When people say that like, it's a political, that it's, they're, they're against the actions of the government, you know, the government, they think that they're cool, etc., etc., like, what do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, it's, it's, quite, okay, it's quite legitimate to criticize the actions of the Israeli government. 
one can argue, you know, I criticize the actions of the Israeli government also, I must admit. You know, I must plead guilty uh, constantly, as do many other people, um, on all sorts of uh, areas of its activities. So this is quite legitimate. If people simply want to criticize the actions of the Israeli government, in my opinion, let them, let them go right ahead. If you have a sense, however, that their criticisms of the Israeli government appear to be uh, unique, that they appear to be criticizing the Israeli government on a basis which they do not criticize other governments in other countries, if you have the sense that their solution to their criticisms of the Israeli government is that Israel ceased to exist, then you have business with a quite different kind of, uh, of, of situation. So I would suggest to you that you need to ascertain that. Ascertain it by asking questions. Ascertain it by arming yourself you know, with the ideas and with the facts of the history. And if you, having asked those questions, conclude that the person you're talking to genuinely just thinks that Israel, the government of Netanyahu has made some wrong decisions, then you should, by all means, leave that person alone and bother them no more. I have the lady over here. I know you, um, you're not a mind reader, but do you have any... Um, How do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about your impression of Obama's Middle Eastern policy? That's one question. Okay. And the other thing that I would like to ask you about is um, what, how do you understand what what happened in Libya and uh, what's going on in Afghanistan? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's maybe stick to the first um, question. Okay, well, uh, with regard to, I mean, again, we're here to talk really about uh, anti-Semitism in the Middle East, so it's not quite uh, relevant. Let me, let me just briefly say the following. I, you know, I do think, without wishing to take sides on the U.S. presidential election, I, I do think that the current president uh, has not succeeded in understanding the core dynamics of how things work uh, in the Middle East. Um, I understand what he was trying to do. I think what the president thought he was going to do when he came into office was to try to repair the terrible damage, as he saw it, which the previous administration had done uh, in terms of America's image uh, in the Middle East. The problem is that he went about it, in my estimation at least, quite in the wrong way. Because what he thought was that if you express empathy for people and if you express uh, understanding for their culture and their traditions and so on, which is a nice thing in general to do, but he thought if you do that, this will produce political results. It'll produce the uh, increasing value, so to speak, of, of America's image and American strategic coin in the region. And so he went to Cairo in 2009 and he gave that speech in which, by the way, people will remember, he insisted on Muslim Brotherhood people being in the, uh, in the front row. Um, and committed, in my opinion, a grave uh, error. He then compounded this, in my estimation, by failing to back and being seen to fail to back long-standing American allies in the Middle East. Bin Ali in Tunisia, Mubarak in Egypt. He then compounded that failure by failing to confront long-standing American enemies in the Middle East. Assad, Syria, the uh, Iran of the uh, Ayatollahs, and so on and so forth. What this comes down to, in my view, is the following conceptual failure. He thought that what you need to do with enemies in the Middle East is to make them like you, and what you need to do with friends in the Middle East is, well, that's less important. They'll just be your friends anyway. It doesn't work that way. What you need to do in the Middle East is make sure that your friends know they can rely on you, and make sure your enemies know that they should fear you. This president, in my estimation at least, has failed to do both. 
The actions of the United States in the region of the last four years have produced the following situation. America's traditional friends are either no longer in power, some of them are in jail, or they're in power and very scared and very worried. America's traditional enemies, on the other hand, are looking at their strategic backer, the Iranians or the Russians, and saying, boy, thank God I chose the right side. Thank God I chose the right patron. I, Bashar Assad, yeah, so to speak, I, Bashar Assad, yeah, if I'd chosen the wrong patron, I'd now be either in the good uh, outcome in jail or in the bad outcome six foot under the ground, like Gaddafi. But I'm still there, and why am I still there? Because my backers, Russia and Iran, are backing me all the way. In other words, the actions of this administration, in my estimation, in the Middle East, have resulted in a serious devaluation of American strategic coin in the region, a serious devaluation of the value of the Americans as a patron. And whoever it is that comes into power or continues being in power after the elections in November will be faced, first and foremost in the Middle East, I wish to suggest, with the task of rebuilding that strategic coin, making America uh, once more you know, a solid backer to its friends and an enemy to be considered you know, to its enemies, a situation which does not currently exist. And we probably don't have time, so I'll be happy afterwards to talk about Libya and Afghanistan uh, if you'd like me to ask about that. Maybe one more question and then we'll... Uh, Mr. Roskies. Um, you certainly... Uh, I was going to say you're painting a very bleak picture uh, in terms of anti-Semitism in the Middle East, but I think it is, it is a bleak picture. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's anything positive that you see. Um, as a second part, is there anybody in the Arab world supporting your work? Right. Um, is there anything positive which I see? Look, I talk all the time as part of my work to people in the Arab world, also from the Arab world who are no longer in the Arab world and also within the Arab world. There are Arab liberals, there are Arab Democrats, there are Arab anti-racists. There's no shortage of them. They exist. Many of them are very brave people. Many of them are very, most of them are very admirable people. Um, the problem is that in terms of political power, uh, and, and mass political support in Arab societies uh, in 2012, they don't have it. Many of them find themselves ending up in the West. If they stay in the Arab world, then they find themselves often politically isolated, politically set upon. The simple fact of the matter politically in the Arab world today is that you have the regimes and you have the Islamists, and it will be one or the other. And it's not nice to say that. But that's what I was saying, been saying for many years, and I, I think that the events of the last year and a half have more than borne out that prediction. That was the case, and that remains the case. Do I like it? I don't like it, but uh, that's the way it is. Let me end on a, a supremely cynical note, which won't make any of us feel any better, which is, uh, you asked me, do I see anything positive in all of this? Frankly, what I see positive in all of this is that whilst I may be depicting uh, very anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish uh, societies in the Arab world, I'm very, very happy that there are very, very few Jews living in any of those countries anymore, and I'm very, very happy that the vast majority of Jews who did live in those countries and who suffered greatly in them for many years and many generations, they or their descendants are now able to live either in the West or also, of course, in the uh, Jewish sovereign state of Israel, which more than justified its uh, historic task, I think, in the successful absorption of most of the ancient Jewish communities of the Middle East. So while it's tragic on a certain level that the Jewish community of Baghdad, which existed since the time of the first temple, no longer exists, the tragedy is, is made less so, I think, when we consider you know, just how successful and just how happy 
most of the descendants of that historic community are uh, in Israel today.